We have now covered the meditation on the superficial or conventional nature of the mind or mental activity. And now we're ready to look a little bit at the meditation on the deepest nature of the mind. Now, when we talk about these uh, two truths, I mean, when we talk about these two natures, we're talking about the two truths about mind. These are two facts that are true about the mind. In the uh, Hinayana tenet systems, when we talk about the two truths, we are talking about two different types of true phenomena. We are speaking about two different types of phenomena. Whereas when we are speaking in the Mahayana context about the two truths, we are talking about two truths concerning one phenomenon. And so they are both true. And uh, they are inseparable. You can't have one without the other. For this reason, I choose to translate the Tibetan word here as deepest rather than something like absolute or ultimate. Because at least in English, the words absolute and ultimate imply that it's more true than the uh, other true fact. And also the word absolute, at least in English, has the additional uh, misleading connotation that it doesn't depend on anything else. In Russian, what's the connotation of absolutely? Because I, I hear that you use it. Mm-hmm. 
not maybe as much as in English, but it does make as a flavor of something that's sufficient sort of and more true than uh, the uh, superficial uh, you see there are some uh, tenant systems which actually do you not tenant systems but some schools within Tibetan Buddhism, and I shouldn't say schools, I should say some authors, some masters who do use those terms in such a way that what I call deepest truth becomes for them like a transcendent realm almost. So in that sense, it becomes almost absolute. But certainly in the Galuk context, that is not the case. But that's a long discussion in terms of uh, why you have these various differences in the uh, different uh, Tibetan schools and among the different Tibetan masters and we don't have so much time to go into that. But here we have two true facts about mind. One is on the surface, what does it appear to be? And the other is on the uh, when you look deeper, how does it actually exist? So both are true. And when we look at the deepest nature of the mind, what it is referring to, of course, is its voidness. Voidness is a it's a negation. It's a negatingly known phenomenon. Remember we were talking about what exists and what doesn't exist. What exists can be validly known, what doesn't exist cannot be validly known. What uh, exists, what can be validly known, 
can be known either in an affirming way or in a negating way. So, what can be known in an affirming way or an affirmation phenomenon would be table. You don't have to know anything beforehand in order to uh, know table. A negatingly known phenomenon would be not a chair. In order to know not a chair, you have to know chair beforehand, and it is excluded, it's negated. Okay, and of course that becomes a very, very interesting topic in terms of uh, learning theory, how does a baby learn food, how does a baby learn not food, these sort of things. It becomes very interesting, actually. But in any case, voidness is a negatingly known phenomenon. It is excluding something. There are two types of negatingly known phenomenon. One that uh, implies something or implicative one and one which is a non-implicative one that doesn't imply something. Well, what it means literally, if we look at the actual uh, Tibetan definition, there is a negating phenomenon that leaves something behind it, and there's one which doesn't leave something behind it. Mm. So when we uh, say, uh, let's say, not a, well, example would be not a, uh, to find a, uh, a clear example. Not a tablecloth. Okay, not a tablecloth leaves behind it that it's something else. It's not a tablecloth, it's a... Um, what does it say? Uh, <laughs> not a tablecloth, a glass. Hmm. 
I'm looking for a tablecloth all over the house, and I, I look at this thing, I look at that thing, I look at thing, that's not a tablecloth, that's not a tablecloth, not a tablecloth, not a tablecloth, not a tablecloth. It's something else, it leaves something behind. But then, finally, we talk about there is no tablecloth. There is no tablecloth. doesn't leave anything behind. So one is called an implicative negation. The other is called a non-implicative Negation. Hmm. So, voidness is a non-implicative negation. It's saying there is no such, no blah blah blah. Non-implicative. Hmm. Now, when we talk about there is no blah blah blah, then we can talk about there is no tablecloth, that's something that exists, or we can talk about there is no invader from the fifth dimension, which is something that doesn't exist. Мы можем под бла-бла-бла подразумевать два вида феномена, как существующий, так и несуществующий. И делать верное утверждение не существует мир пришельцев из пятого измерения. Нет чего-то, что и не существует. So Buddhism, uh, not Buddhism, voidness is a non-implicative negation of something that doesn't exist. And in addition, when we talk about the absence of something that doesn't exist, we can speak about the absence of an object that doesn't exist or a manner of existing that doesn't exist. And voidness is talking about the absence of a manner of existence that does not exist. Mm-hmm. So, 
There is no such thing as an impossible way of existing, to put it in simple language. And so there is a total absence of this impossible way of existing. It never existed. It wasn't, uh, you know, it's not like there's no dog in the room. And the dog might be outside. Uh, just left for a little while. We're not talking about that. We're talking about something that never existed. No such thing. Now, this study of these negation phenomena can be very far-reaching and actually is very helpful to uh, enable us to do voidness meditation correctly. Okay, now there are many ways of discussing this topic. And when we talk about impossible ways of existing, that is a very general way of translating uh, our terms here. We're not talking so much about a way of existing as such. We're talking more about a way of establishing the existence of something. For the sake of for the sake of our translator who knows Tibetan, we're not talking about Denbar Yoba, we're talking about Denbar Drupa. Drupa means to establish something, to prove something. So, what establishes, what proves, what makes something exist? Is there something on the side of the object that establishes that uh, it exists or not? How do we know that something exists? This becomes a very interesting problem. Very interesting question. How do you know that there's a chair, that these chairs are in this room when we're out of the room? Uh, 
How do you know that? What establishes that they are in the room? When you open the door and you look, you can see it. So it's established from the side of the mind. It's not established from the side of the chair. Or you have a camera or some sort of mechanical device that is recording it. So how do you know? You look at the, what the mechanical device says. So it still involves the mind. Well, this is our whole discussion here. Obviously, we can get far more refined than uh, just these introductory remarks, but that is the topic of discussion of voidness. What establishes that something exists and what we are negating here is impossible ways of establishing that something exists. We're talking about what establishes that something exists. And the absence of impossible uh, ways of establishing that something exists. This room is filled with atoms and force fields and subatomic particles. Mm-hmm. You know, energy fields. It doesn't matter. Kind of electromagnetic energy. I mean, all this sort of stuff. What establishes that this group of atoms is uh, you know a body is there some sort of plastic coating around this group of atoms and this group of electromagnetic energy that encapsulates and makes it into an object separate from the atoms of the air around is there? Yes, yes. It isn't any plastic bag, but you know it's uh, the, the question of vibration of atoms, of energy apart. Okay, so it isn't a plastic coating, it's a question of vibration of atoms. Well, where is the boundary? What sets the boundary between the vibration of the atoms or the energy 
that constitute the body and that constitute the air. Where is the boundary? Allowance of vibrations is uh, such small in our material body that we can uh, believe it became material. Okay, so the amount of vibrations is small in our body. So is there, uh, you know, if it's one micro, micro, you know, vibration more or less, then it's not the body, that it is the body, it's, it's an absolute number? What makes an object uh, red? What establishes that the color of that object over there is red? Is there something on the side of the object, a little label that says red? In the light spectrum, are there boundaries, you know, that are solidly there, the walls that say, you know, this vibration, you know, more than that number is red and less than that number is orange. Does that exist on the side of the light spectrum? There is no such thing. That doesn't establish that that's red. There's no straight boundaries. And of course, every um, uh, society is going to divide the color spectrum differently. And even individuals will divide the color spectrum differently. The shirt that she's wearing, I'm sure if we ask a whole group of people, some people will call it green, some people will call it blue. Which one is it? Turquoise. Some people will call it turquoise. So, what establishes these things? And here we get into the whole realm of mental labeling.
И здесь мы передвигаем, переходим в такую так сказать, сферу в мир ментального обозначения. It, what establishes that something exists even just as a knowable object, let alone as what it is, red or, or orange, is mental labeling. Then we have to understand what mental labeling means. Mental labeling can also be called imputation. That's how it usually is. Often it's translated in English. It's just we're just talking about different English ways of translating it. <laughs> Not amputate, impute. <laughs> impute. Impute means to put something onto something else. Okay, so we are putting something onto something else. Now, we have a mental label. We have a basis for labeling. And then we have the uh, referent object of the label. Doctrine. These aren't easy words to translate. Yeah, no. The referent word, okay, we, uh, uh, okay, there's the word red. That's a a label. Right, which after all is just a, an acoustic pattern that a group of cave people decided, ah, we're going to, you know, make this acoustic pattern into uh, a word and we're going to give it a certain meaning. It's totally arbitrary. So words are totally made up by a group of people and adopted as a convention. That's why we talk about conventional truth. Okay, so the basis for labeling the dakshi is uh, vibrations of uh, 
what should we say? Light, the light spectrum. Between a certain part of the spectrum, between this part and that part. Hmm. Actually, you know, this isn't scientifically accurate because somebody was telling me that colors are actually just really a mental thing that there, there, there isn't actually colors. We're just talking about light. But let's just leave this on the child, child level of understanding of colors. Okay, so now the referent object of the label would be red. In other words, what, is, what does the word red refer to? It refers to red on the basis of these vibrations. So it's the conventional object, red. Or here we're talking about equality. Do you follow that? We're talking about, but we're talking about the conventional object. Let's use a grosser example. Sasha is a name. Right? That's just a name, a word. And there's a basis for labeling that body, mind, feelings, etc. So who's Sasha? Sasha is not the word Sasha, it's not the name Sasha. Sasha is not the body or the mind. So what's Sasha? Sasha is what the word Sasha refers to on the basis of this body and mind. And there is a conventionally existent person, Sasha. Take a moment to digest that. Okay, do you follow that? Yes. Чем отличается вот этот дефект референшнл Саша от того объекта, на который мы накладываем, на который мы присваиваем новое значение? 
наложить на тело, можем на ум, можем на что угодно, а Саша это условно существующий я, мое эго, которое условно существует и функционирует. Is a very crucial thing that the basis for labeling is not identical with the uh, uh, referent object of the label. They're not exactly the same, nor are they totally, they don't make one identical thing, nor they're not one ping-pong ball, nor are they two totally separate, independent ping-pong balls. Unrelated to each other and, unre- and not relating to each other. Can we say that by putting label on the basic we get a reference object? The question is by imputing a label onto the refer- onto the basis yeah. that we get the referent object. That's a very important question. The process, when we talk about mental labeling here, we're not talking about the active process of labeling. Это интересный вопрос, и здесь необходимо понять, что процесс этого номинирования да, или обозначения а, ментального а, навешивания ярлыка не есть процесс активный. It's not an active process. It doesn't require somebody actively mentally labeling something in order to create a referent object of a label. Did the earth exist? What establishes that the earth existed before there were any living beings? On the earth. Well, what's earth? The earth. It's what the word earth refers to on the basis of, you know, planet. Does it matter whether or not uh, somebody was there to label it uh, earth? No. But here, in that example, maybe that's a little bit misleading because uh, Earth is a name and obviously different societies could call it by a different name. So more importantly, so more 
subtly is what establishes that it, it was a knowable phenomenon. Could be known, doesn't require somebody being there. Knowing it. Right. What the word knowable object refers to on the basis of this thing. <laughs> a knowable object. I mean, that's just a concept as well. That's a label. So the, the Earth was functioning regardless of sentient beings living or not living. Right. The Earth was functioning regardless of beings being there or not, regardless of beings experiencing or not. But if we ask what is the Earth, what establishes the Earth? What establishes it is the label Earth, what establishes it is label knowable thing, and so on, on the basis of a basis for labeling. And it was a noble object, regardless of whether or not anybody knew it. It's what the word knowable object, it's what the word existent thing refers to on the basis of a basis for labeling. Now, one has to be very careful here, and this, this starts to get very subtle. The basis for labeling doesn't exist like some sort of blank cassette, and we come along with a label and put the label on it. Basis for labeling itself is what a label refers to, and it itself dependently arises in terms of mental labeling. And I labeled Sasha on the basis of uh, body and mind. But what's the body? The body is also labeled in terms of its parts. What are the parts? They're labeled in terms of the atoms. What are the atoms? They're labeled in terms of, you know, it just goes on and on. Hmm. Now, we have to differentiate the referent object of a label 
from the referent thing of the label is how I'm translating it Dakcha versus Dakchun in English yeah. I call it the referent object which would be the conventionally existent thing and the referent thing a referent thing doesn't exist a referent thing would be an actual thing on the side of the object that by its own power makes it an existent thing or makes it a table or makes it Sasha so an actual findable Sasha on the side of Sasha that would be the reference thing the doctrine there are two different words in Tibetan as opposed to doctrine which is the conventionally existent referent of the word Sasha so when we talk about true what would be truly established existence Truly established existence is existence established by a referent thing findable on the side of the basis for labeling. Then, that, that, will prove that, that is what true existence is and that is what is impossible yeah, there, when we talk about no such thing as truly established existence we are talking about the absence of existence established by a findable referent thing on the side of the basis for labeling Okay. And, you know, what's impossible is that this referent thing on the side of the basis, by its own power, makes me me, or makes something something, or by its own power in conjunction with the mental labeling, makes me me. <laughs> it's like <laughs> really funny we we all think like this in this incorrect way we think that there's some uh, me real findable me I have to find myself if I can find myself if I can find who I really am then you know I'll be okay 
So it is as if there were a referent thing, a me, inside me, that I could find, and which makes me me, makes me a unique individual. And then when I find it, I have to express it. Express the real name. Share it with the world, you know. Create, be creative, you know, prove that I exist. <laughs> now we even speak in terms of that, you know, the real me, the truly existent me. So this is what is impossible and it, you know, there isn't a real me by its own power that is, you know, making me me. Findable sitting somewhere inside my head or my body or something like that. Or, and it's not something which is sort of like a, a, a hook that, you know, well, uh, if you labeled it me, then, you know, it lights up and now I'm me. Yeah. Uh, so those objects we have no reference of, like those invaded from the fifth dimension. So they are they deprived of any existence then? And they exist absolutely. How do they exist? Those things we have no reference of. Well, this is a, a very interesting question. Uh, when we talk about invaders from the fifth dimension, do they have any existence? Or if we have uh, talk about true existence, truly established existence, does it have any existence? Mm-hmm. <laughs> First of all, the fact that uh, this gets very complicated, and there are many different explanations for this. Hmm. It's the topic of uh, cognition of non-existent phenomena. Hmm. I have an article on that on my website, and the new version of the website will have a revision of that article, a more precise version. And Galupa and non-Galupa disagree, or what should we say, analyze it differently. Hmm. 
uh, a non-existent phenomenon. I mean, how do we cognize a non-existent phenomenon? Do we actually cognize the invader from the fifth dimension or, or the appearance of true existence or do we cognize something that represents it? A mental representation of it. Now, anything that we cognize, we cognize through a mental representation. Remember, we were talking about mental holograms. If we talk about explicit uh, apprehension here, where, uh, an appear- where there is an appearance, we're not talking about where there's no appearance, so let's talk about where there is an appearance. Mm. Now, the question is, what are the causes and conditions for that, for the arising of that mental hologram? In the case of the arising of a mental hologram of Sasha, uh, there's an externally existent object that is the, um, it's called the focal condition for the arising of that mental hologram. Mikian. What what one focuses on in order to have the cognition. In the case of a mental hologram of an invader from the fifth dimension or of true existence, there is no external object acting as the focal condition for this. This is arising for uh, what's called a cause for hallucination in the, se- in the uh, context of seeing an invader from the fifth dimension or caused by the constant habits, the pakcha, of grasping for true existence. It can be either a cause of hallucination. Uh, 
That would be, you know, like seeing a, a pink elephant or something like that. Or when we talk about uh, an appearance of true existence that's coming from the, con- the, pakcha, the constant habits of uh, uh, grasping for true existence. А в случае, например, с видением истинного существования, да, это не галлюцинаторный фактор, это фактор длительной привычки или инерции ментальной, которая, по сути, есть бахчаки, да, или кармические отпечатки видения истинного существования, находящиеся в потоке нашего сознания в изначальных времен. В силу этой привычки мы видим вот эти вот несуществующие истинные существования. So Galupa, no, the Galupa Prasanga gets into a whole interesting discussion of do hallucinations exist? And they say that yes, they do exist as mental as mental holograms. And they could even be known accurately in the sense that I accurately uh, cognize this as a hallucination of an invader from the fifth dimension and not as a pink elephant. Nevertheless, it's of something that doesn't exist at all. I mean, there's no uh, actual uh, invaders from the fifth dimension. This starts to become very, very profound and very deep when one investigates this from the point of view of true existence. Just because true existence appears doesn't establish that true existence itself exists, that appearance of true existence exists. And we can accurately identify this is an appearance of true existence, even though true existence doesn't exist. Sunkapa makes a big deal out of this. This is the background of his whole discussion of identifying the object to be negated. And the others say, you know, come on, this is ridiculous, it doesn't exist at all. So how can you identify something that doesn't exist? со своей дискуссией по определению объекта отрицания, в то время как другие философы, well, other philosophers say, the non-galupers say that how can you identify something that doesn't exist? So this whole point, this radical thing that Tsongkhapa made of, you know, so important, the first step in voidness meditation is to identify the object to be refuted. They said the gacha. 
they're saying, you know, well, you're talking about something that doesn't exist at all. And Tsongkhapa says, yes, but you can accurately identify the appearance of true existence. You can, I, <laughs> now it becomes even more interesting because you can uh, mentally label true existence. What is true existence? This is what the term true existence refers to. But now we bring in another technical term, the shenyul. The conceptually implied object doesn't exist. It's a conceptually implied object. That doesn't exist. In other words, actually conventionally existent true existence doesn't exist. What is true existence? What the word true existence refers to? Does it conventionally exist? No. That would be conventionally existent true existence. So here the Dakcha and the Shenyul are not the same. The, object, the reference object of the label and the conceptually implied object of the label are not the same. Now, for most of us on a beginning level, this is this detailed discussion is perhaps not too helpful or necessary, but since the translator is also a translator of Tibetan, then these technical terms are not so easy to work with and get a grasp on, and they are really quite specific in their definitions, what they're talking about, and one has to be quite clear about it. Для нас на нашем сказать, начальном уровне подобные дискуссии может быть не очень полезны и способны нас ввести в смятение нашей умы. Вот. Но хоть скоро мы пытаемся разобраться с некоторыми терминами, и, и я, как бы знаю, тибетский также пытаюсь провести с русские параллели, и мы можно к нам сказать, вернуться к общему источнику, к тибетскому термину, и пытаться вывести из него русское значение, русский термин. But I think that we can at least appreciate that the philosophical analysis here 
It was very, very precise. And if we want to uh, understand the voidness of the mind here in the Mahamudra meditation, that we really need to have studied quite well the teachings on voidness in order to be able to apply them. Hmm. You know, what are we talking about here in the context of Mahamudra? First of all, uh, the Penchen Lama, first Penchen Lama, divides his discussion of voidness into two parts. Remember, we were talking the other day about how what is accompanying our each moment of our cognition is the grasping for uh, truly existent me and uh, truly well, no, let's try that again. We have grasping for an impossible soul of a person and grasping for an impossible soul of all phenomenon. Well, soul I'm using as a translation of Atman. Okay, because self sounds a little bit silly here. Uh, there's an impossible uh, soul or impossible self of person and of phenomenon. So when we're doing this meditation, there is the appearance of an impossible me uh, who's doing the meditation. There's an appearance of impossible mind, possibly existent mind that we're meditating on. Appearance, yeah? uh, so there's the appearance making, you know, from these, the habits of these, appearance making of an impossible me, in this case a truly existent me, and the appearance making of a truly existent mind. mind. So the reputation here is first of the false me and then the falsely existent uh, mind. Okay, now, well, there's a big discussion. We don't have to go into tremendous detail since we don't have so much time, a little bit of detail. Then we have the refutation. So this discussion is refutation of truly existent 
me, and then refutation, who's doing the meditating, and then refutation, the truly existent mind, which is the object upon which we are meditating and in Galuk Prasangika, the impossible way that both of these uh, seem to exist in is the same. The object of refutation is the same. The impossible way of existing. No, we're talking here about we talk about mind, for example. Then what is mind? Well, what the word mind refers to on the basis of stream of continuity of moments of experience. Right, and each of those moments is made up of micro-moments, and each of those are made up of micro-micro-moments, and there's uh, no, uh, what should we say, partless basis no ultimately findable basis. So what's mind is the reference object of this word you know, or concept that some people made up. Uh, when it's labeled, you know, in terms of um, this base, in relation to this basis of uh, labeling. Now, rather than thinking that it is what the word mind refers to when it is labeled on this basis, which brings up your whole question of, you know, you have to have somebody actively labeling it, rather than that, it's perhaps more accurate and less misleading to speak of this in terms of dependent arising. The way that His Holiness the Dalai Lama explains this. So it is what the word 
mind refers to dependent on or re in relation to a basis for labeling. That's a little bit more accurate. Something arises as a basis for labeling dependent on a label, and the label arises dependent on a basis for labeling. They both mutually arise dependent on each other. No, the label. The label and the referent object and the basis all arise dependently on each other. Okay, so what's mind? It's what, you know, the referent object of the word mind in relation to, you know, these moments of experience. Is there a referent thing, mind, somewhere on the side of each moment of, the, of experience that we can find there? No. Now, next step with that, though, is what's called, can, is existence established by individual defining characteristics? Rangitseni <laughs> Gitrupa. Is existence defined? Is existence established by some individual defining characteristics? In other words, Remember, we had the defining characteristic of mind, you know, mere arising and engaging, mere clarity and awareness. So is there, you know, this defining characteristic? Can you actually, you know, sitting there inside each moment that's making us mind? No. So its, its existence is established through the defining characteristics. That would be, you know, if there were such a thing. But there is no such thing. А мы говорили, что ум определяется на относительном уровне как ясное, познающее и только это, да? Находим ли мы вот в этом потоке сознания в объекте, в основе для обозначения некую бегущую строку этой дефиниции, да, которая там есть, и мы ее оттуда вычленяем? Находим ли нет? Even the defining characteristics are just a convention. Somebody made it up, and there it is in the dictionary. Okay, 
that becomes very, very significant in our meditation because we have identified the defining characteristic in our first step of mind and then we have to realize that you can't find that defining characteristic that that's just that itself is a convention Let's take a moment to swallow that. <laughs> so, conventionally there are objects, such as mind. Conventionally there are defining characteristics like mere arising of cognitive object and engaging with it. But nothing can be found on the side of the object or on the side of the basis that neither the you know the object itself, a reference thing, or the actual defining characteristics. And despite all of that, still functions, mind still functions. Brings us samsara and it brings us nirvana. Let's take a break, think about that, and then we'll have time for some questions.